Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Jane Allen. Jane, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Henry. Well, we're going to chat about Jane's journey uh, and her business experiences, and then her insights on the, the stages of an entrepreneurial journey. That'll make a little bit more sense here when we learn that she is the CEO of the National Nashville Entrepreneur Center. But if you want to receive more information about the How of Business, including links to the show notes page for this episode, and how you can continue to support my show and receive exclusive content and discounts through a Patreon membership, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. So let me tell you a little bit more about Jane Allen. Jane Allen is an entrepreneur and founder of the Council on Call, which is today known as, pronounce that for me, Jane, if you will. I should have asked you before we started, but how do you pronounce that name now? Yes, Legility. Legility. That's what I thought, but I didn't want to guess there. So Council on Call, which is now today known as Legility and Hannah Clark, a women's handbag manufacturer and retailer. And she's the CEO, as I mentioned, of Nashville Entrepreneur Center, a nonprofit organization dedicated to connecting entrepreneurs with the resources needed to increase their probability for success at any stage. Since taking over uh, her role at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, which they refer to as the EC, back in October of 2019, Jane's experience in taking a business from the idea phase to a fully scaled successful company has proven key in helping strengthen the, the EC's role as a significant support system for the vibrant entrepreneurial ecosystem in Nashville. Jane first moved to Nashville in 1994, where she was an attorney at a firm until 2000, when she left that firm to start her own business, Council on Call, which is now called Legility. And On Demand, that was an on-demand legal services company, which she grew into a nationally acclaimed business and so Jane lives in the Nashville, Tennessee area. Jane Allen, once again, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you. All right. So I'd like to start with, with your journey early on. And, and uh, you, you went to school, obviously, went to law school, practicing as an attorney for a firm. Even in those early days, did you aspire to start your own business? No, never. <laughs> um, no, to the contrary. I was actually, you know, I've worked full time since I was 15 put myself through college, was a school teacher. Um, the thought of going to law school, I assume I'd have to go at night. And then I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to go through law school. And so I've always been very, um, some might say risk averse. So no, the idea of doing this to start my own business was never in my mind from the beginning. Wow. Interesting. So, so what happened then that leads to you starting your first business? Sure. Um, you know, I'm practicing law. I had, I'd had the opportunity to clerk for a federal judge. And I remember one comment he made, which is, you know, I'm not sure about you at a large firm because you ask why way too often. <laughs> and I took that as an insult um, in my youth. And as I got older, I realized what um, how observant and accurate it was. And, and now I take it very much as a compliment. But that being said, um, you know, I was practicing law, I enjoyed the practice of law. And I did, you know, litigation, a lot of federal court litigation. Um, but I really saw 
two things. One is I saw a lot of women leaving the profession and thought, man, these are amazing lawyers who have worked hard, graduated in the top of the class, had great jobs, received really good training, and then they leave because the profession isn't adaptable enough to figure out or want to keep them. And then two, I thought we have variable client base, but static hiring base. And so those are the two thoughts that kept spinning in my head that eventually led me to start Council on Call. I see. And what was the focus of that business? What, what, was, what was the problem you were solving there? Yeah, originally it was to allow lawyers to be able to stay in the practice and then allow lawyers to be able to hire lawyers when they needed it without sacrificing the quality. So it was a lawyer to lawyer business at the, at the beginning. It truly was a people business. Um, lawyer to lawyer, meaning, you know, I've got a spike in my workload. I don't necessarily want to go hire new associates because I don't think it's going to last more than eight to 12 months, but I need really good people who can come in here and help carry the load to get me through this matter. That was the original business premise. Got it. Interesting. Now you, you exited that business. You, you sold that business or what, what, how did you exit that business? Yes, we had the business and we, um, we kept it just my husband, who is the MBA from Wharton, and then I'm the lawyer. And so together we really took the business to where it evolved into technology, project management, data, analytics, metrics, way before most people were looking at those things because you just listen to the needs and you adapt. And so in 2016, we were through the U.S., throughout the U.S., and had some clients in Europe. And I just felt we had taken it as far as we really could take it if we were going to continue on the trajectory I wanted it to be able, lawyers to be able to practice and hire regardless of geographic limitation, which in my mind meant global, and just thought we really needed the expertise of leadership who had been there and done it. And so we sold a majority of the company to private equity in 2016, but remained on the board until December, we actually made our final transaction. And so we're in 36 countries and we did another transaction. And so we are no longer affiliated with the company at all. Interesting. Thanks for sharing that. All right. So then what, what brings you to going into business with your sister? Yeah, well, I mean, it was one of those after you, or for me, after, uh, you know, I sell a majority and, you know, you, you were running a hundred miles an hour, you know, traveling all the time. Um, a lot of my friends were my clients, the people I worked with or people that helped build this business that I cared deeply for. Um, and then, you know, when we do the transaction and we bring in new leadership, I also was, um, experienced enough to know that a company really can't have two leaders. (laughs) And so I needed to exit stage, right. And not be around the business or the clients or the employee base. And, um, and, and, you know, so it's one of those where you're out there just trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do, if anything? And I had searched for, I mean, it's a funny story, but I had searched for a handbag for about 15 years. And my sister is a prolific shopper, and she's she is also very accomplished. She was the first female dean of the law school of the University of Georgia. And um, but 
I would always talk to her about this bag that I wanted and I wanted it to be able to be a shoulder bag that went right on my shoulder, stayed on my shoulder, allowed me to have my hands free, didn't look like a man's briefcase, was feminine yet professional. So in my brain, I knew what it was and she knew what it was. And so we were just at a time in our lives where she had retired and unfortunately her husband had passed and I had stepped down. And so we were walking the beach one day and it was like, well, why don't we just make the handbag that we've dreamt of. And so it was with that that started sourcing leather and went to leather places all over the United States and couldn't find what was in my brain and sourced and finally found a distributor out of England that gave that I was able to get this amazing Italian leather. And then um, found a sew house in LA that would do smaller quantities. And so went out and set up and then did the whole, you know, I had a woman actually that I went to church or that I go to church with that did my prototype for me. And, um, you know, it was with that, it was launched and, um, you know, it was a labor of love for sure. And that it allowed my sister and I to do something together. It allowed our children to be able to see, take in an idea to reality and it also let me know I really wasn't as desperate as I used to be to go out and sell and get on a plane every day. So right. it was right. it was a fun journey. So I've done businesses with family members. Any any thoughts or tips for how you two have been able to make it work as siblings? Yeah, um, I think we both respect one another and what we each bring to the table. Um, I am probably her number one fan and she might be mine now that our mother has passed. And so, um, you know, we complement each other quite well and, you know, nothing's more important than the, the familial relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we've just never really had a problem, uh, working together. You mentioned, you know, a challenge with having two leaders. How do you, how do you all determine that? Is one of you the CEO or are you co-CEOs? How do you manage that? No, I mean, I think with any small business, I've never believed in titles. I believe in you do what you need to do to get the job done. And so, you know, I, I was going to LA because my son was in college there. And so it made sense for me to go out and meet with the, the different places and find the sew house. And then, you know, Rebecca went out and met with them and, you know, it just, it just works. I mean, you know, I think that's sometimes I see that with small businesses, you get so caught up in titles and roles and responsibilities when, and you're in a startup phase, you do whatever you got to do. And so we both just do that. Now she, you know, definitely is much better at managing the website and making sure all of those type of things are getting done. And um, we just sort of, it just fell into place pretty easily. So it sounds like you have some division of duties, but I got to think then, Jane, you guys are very clear on the vision for the business. You're, you're on the same page for that. Is that part of how it works well? Yeah. I mean, we both knew what we were going after and that we had talked about this thing for years that we kept looking for. Yeah. And so, you know, absolutely. And it's no different than even with counsel on call with my spouse, while he was never an employee or a partner in the business, he had a fund that went out and invested in other businesses and helped, you know, them grow and be more profitable, et cetera. Um, you know, he definitely was right there every step of the way. And it was more of a division of duties. I mean, he yeah. was much more the operations. I was much more the lawyer side of the business. Yeah. I didn't have to worry about accounting. I trusted him. He didn't have to worry about bringing in business because that was, and so, you know, it's just, I do think there is a clear 
division of labor, but it's based on one's skill sets and what they're good at, um, probably more so than anything else. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's been my experience. I think that's a component of it. You mentioned the trust and, and, and going into it with that mindset. I get asked all the time, hey, should I go into business with friends and family? And I say, well, I've done it. And then it can go as good or bad as it could with somebody who's not family members. I think the same basic tenets are at play, which is communication, clear understanding up front, and, and if possible, that division of duties as much as it might make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, yeah. I think so. I mean, again, it's, you know, there's, there is no playbook, <laughs> right. um, you know, and so I think, you know, it just really is, but I do think, you know, another thing I see, especially in my role here is sometimes people hire people that are just like them, right? Like, wow. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend that. I mm-hmm. would recommend somebody that challenges you and that compliments you more so than somebody that's going to say yes all the time and looks, you know, and their skill set is exactly what your skill set is. But yes. Great point. So, you know, you didn't think you'd be a business owner, but here you are, you've been doing it for some time now. What, what does it do for you? What does being a business owner provide for you? Um, you know, I, I don't think I've never thought about that question as far as, um, what does it provide for me? I think it aligns with who I am and especially who I've grown to be. Um, you know, I, you know, I was just having lunch with somebody and she made a comment about this woman is a doer and, and I think business owners are doers. Um, and, and I think that I've always been somebody, if I say, I'm going to do something, I do it. I, I get the job done. I try to do it really well. And on the other hand, I like helping people solve problems and whether that was as a teacher or whether that was as a lawyer or whether that was as a business owner, it was still fundamentally at the same, which was identifying the problem and trying to figure out a way to solve it. And then as a business owner, you figure out a way to solve it that may be the most efficient, cost-effective way to solve it. Yeah. And so I think it just aligns with maybe what my innate skill set has been and just never really realized until you get old enough to look back. Right, right. Now, you mentioned that early on, at least you were a risk averse type personality. I find that usually that doesn't change, but we learn how to manage that in business. You know, that's often what I see people keep that keeps people from starting a business is the risk is just too much for them. How have you come to balance that still being a person that considers risk maybe more than another person, but still overcome that and move forward? Yeah. I mean, I think in the beginning, it was really my spouse that's, you know, what's the worst thing? It fails. And if it fails, you can go practice law. You have a good reputation as a lawyer. And actually my firm promised to hire me back. And so, um, you know, and, and, and truly for me, no different than leaving teaching to go to law school or, or leaving the legal profession to start this. I always said, you know, the way I, I explained it one time is there's something inside of me and I call it a seed. And no matter how much I try to bury it, it keeps sprouting. And I feel if I don't give a little sun and water to it, when I'm 50, I'll look back with regret. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to see this thing through. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, that ends up becoming the driving force versus worrying about the the opportunity for failure, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And you don't allow it to paralyze you. And I think it's a a great point of, I always ask people that very question, what's the worst case scenario? If the worst case scenario is you're going to be destitute and you've, 
you know, squandered your family savings, well, then you're putting too much at risk. But typically, mm -hmm. it's what you answered, I'll go back and get another job or, you know, dust myself off and get over the embarrassment of it and move forward. And that's usually the case, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It is. I mean, I've definitely met people who are single parents with a nice paying job with great benefits, and they've started something. And, you know, I don't see the road to success or right. the financial security. And I just question, um, you know, what, you know, what were you thinking? And that's one thing since I've stepped in here, that was one of my things is I don't want to enable any of that. Right. We've got to be real with people. But yes, often, you know, when you do a personal guarantee and your home is on the line, which most entrepreneurs have to do, and we definitely had to do that as a bootstrapped company, you know, it, I also say that makes you, you know, desperation makes you bold. Mm -hmm. So I never really wanted to get up at 3.30 in the morning and catch the 5.30 flight and, you know, but you do what you've got to do. And right. so I think a little bit of that also drives, um, you know, the reality of you are, you know, grow up, it's time, you know, yeah. and you've got people depending on you and people who have come to work for you. And, you know, the bigger, it's often after the startup stage and the, and the bigger you get, the more pressure. Um, but, you know, I never, I always thought that sort of drove versus crippled. Yeah. Said. This is Henry Lopez briefly pausing this episode to invite you to schedule a free coaching consultation with me. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business plans and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success. As an experienced small business owner myself, I understand the challenges you're experiencing and often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals. Whether it's getting started with your first business or growing and maybe exiting your existing small business, I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services and to schedule your free coaching consultation, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. Take that next step today towards finally realizing your business ownership dreams. I look forward to speaking with you soon. So tell us about what brought you to the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, back in the very beginning and starting Council on Call, there were people in our town that I knew had successful businesses. I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I never thought that much about it. I just knew guys and gals that had successful businesses. And so in the beginning, I just called several of those people and asked if I could pick their brain and how could I think more like you and less like a lawyer? <laughs> hmm. And um and every single person I asked said yes. And every single person gave me their time. And, you know, one gentleman actually met with me every quarter and taught me about accountability and goal setting and, you know, 360 evaluation and et cetera, et cetera. And another one taught me about the importance of margins. And, you know, it was almost like a quick crash MBA course. And so, you know, move forward 10 years, the Nashville Entrepreneur Center was started by a lot of those same people. And it was started through the Chamber of Commerce as a front door for anyone looking to start a business so that there is a central place they can come to. And so when we got to the point where we actually were making money and, and this, the Entrepreneur Center was a nonprofit, donating money to it was easy for me because it was a way to pay it forward for those people who had met with us in the beginning and helped us along our way. 
And so I had been a donor, but quite honestly, had never really been here, had never really been invited here. Had ne- <laughs> I didn't know a lot about it. I just knew I wrote a check to it. And, um, and so, you know, when I was in what I called the, um, oh, you know, out in the forest trying to find the burning bush, um, the wilderness, I received a phone call about the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. And I did know a few of their board members and I knew them as respected colleagues in this town. And, um, and so someone called and asked, would I be interested in leading the Entrepreneur Center? And so, you know, my answer was, well, what does success look like? Because that would be determinative of whether I would be the right fit or not. And, um, and their answer was enough to give me pause and let me at least think about it. And then, like I said earlier, that little seed kept germinating and it would wake me up at night. And I wonder if they've tried this and I wonder if they've tried that. <laughs> and it went from, I wonder if they've tried it too. Well, if we did this, and that's when I looked at my husband, I'm like, you know, I think I might be going back to work. And, um, you know, so then I needed to talk to my, uh, my daughter, who was the only child left at home, I have four children and she was my late in life bonus, as I call her. And she was um, freshman in high school. And so just talk with her um, because so much of her life had been with me traveling and on the road. And I had made a commitment to she and my husband to be much more available. And, um, you know, and, you know, I think her comment was, I love having you at my beck and call, but how selfish would that be? You've got a lot more to share with our you know, you just have a lot more to share. And so, yeah, you've got to do this. And so, and, it was and this was before the handbag business. Is that my, my no, it was, after. it was after. It was after. Okay. okay. Yeah. It was after because still had the handbag business, still had, you know, but again, my rush of the handbag business was taking a thing from my brain and making yeah. a product. Right. Selling and, and marketing the product that doesn't get me jazzed. Right. right. Um, you know, it's great. And I have fabulous handbags that I love carrying. Um, and so I'm not out searching for the perfect bag anymore. But um, no, it was past that. And so it really was just sort of at this point, it was the right time. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, like I said, with my daughter, I knew I wouldn't be able to travel as much as I had hoped and, or, you know, would like to one day because I don't want to leave her and, you know, travel for pleasure. And so, um, so yeah, so yeah. with that, I stepped in October so, 21st, 2019. And you're still there. So it must be going I'm well. Still there. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things I found in doing a little bit of research, it was, this was on the website is what, uh, what you all call there, the entrepreneur's life cycle. And I thought that would be a good thing to go through here in, in the time that we have left the phases that you lay out, because it's, it's such a, you know, such a great, a summary of the process. So the phases that you lay out uh, on the website, and obviously as part of what you teach, is phase one is innovate, phase two is rapid growth, phase three is stabilize or exit, and then phase four is circle back, which mm-hmm. is a lot of what you're doing now in your career. Let's let's start with phase one and innovate. And so uh, I'm assuming you get a lot of people coming in that are at that phase that are looking to for help to get launched, right? Yeah. I mean, I think to take a little step back to put it in context, when I came in, this org had been in business for 11 years. The programming was fabulous. 84% of the entrepreneurs that had come through the actual programs here were still employing people or had had very successful exits. 
And so it was like, wow, I can work with that. <laughs> and so, but it's like, but what do we do and where do we play and what is our sweet spot? You know, as any business, what is your, what is your differentiator? Sure. Um, and so I was really trying to make, make heads or tails of what we do and then what others in the community do, because as a nonprofit, we want to collaborate and I always did that as a for-profit, but we want to collaborate and there's limited resources. And so the whole phases of the life cycle was truly just my way to understand what we do and where we play. And I do believe if you're born an entrepreneur, you die an entrepreneur. I think, you know, I think there are some people that come to it and then some people, they're just born that way and they can't turn it off. Can, can <laughs> um, you learn to be an entrepreneur? Well, I think clearly with all the education programs and academic institutions, they believe that you can. And I believe you can definitely learn how to be a good entrepreneur. But as far as the person that goes into the emergency room and as they are having horrible pain on an x-ray table is sitting there inventing a better way to get this done. I think that's somebody that's born that way. Yeah, if that natural makes sense. Born. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, that, because I believe that too. There are those people, but then that doesn't mean that if I'm not, I don't have that skill or superpower. It doesn't mean I can't be a successful business owner. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, and so in doing that, it was, all right, so it starts with the idea and then it ends, I would argue with death, <laughs> um, even though our marketing team doesn't like me to say that. <laughs> and so it was, and I really started with the phase four group because it was what I found in talking to people in our community is one, we are the entrepreneur center and not the startup center. We are mm -hmm. here to support the entrepreneurs in our community. And this city, Nashville, entrepreneurship is in its tapestry, has been for hundreds of, I mean, we have black owned businesses more than a hundred years old that are still in business today. We have family owned businesses that have been here for years. We have, I mean, it's just in the tapestry of the city, which is one thing I think makes it so special. And so it really was, but what happens after you exit and, and what is your purpose and what do you right. do and, and where do you connect and where do you have a peer group? So we started actually with the phase four group. And so we have a group of successful entrepreneurs who have exited and we get together once a quarter, we have speakers that come in and then we have entrepreneurs from earlier stages that come in and talk about what keeps them awake at night. Because again, our differentiator is our community of people. We have programs that are fabulous, but we really have an amazing group of mentors and advisors, many of which are these phase four entrepreneurs. And so from there, it was where are our programs. So phase one, to get to your question, um, is that is idea. And we don't do a lot in the idea phase. We have more than 30 organizations in our communities that do, including all of our academic institutions that do have programs in the idea phase. Um, and so what we do is we have on our website, like you can fill out a form of what you're looking for. And then we've gone out and vetted partners in our community so we can get it. And then we can, you know, call the, the person and then call the organization and make a connection for them. Yeah. You're facilitating those other resources that are available in the community. If I'm exactly. in that phase. Yeah. Exactly. Based on Where, your experience, though, a couple of questions for you there on that phase. What do you, you know, you've gone through it. You've seen others, obviously many others. What are one or two common mistakes that you see that entrepreneurs make in that 
idea, ideation, innovate phase? Um, one is, are you saw, I mean, to me, this is the biggest, are you solving a problem that people value enough? They pay enough. You'd have profitability. Yes or no. And you know, is that really a problem? And it might be, or it might not be. And so I think that's part of the idea phase, which is why I love entrepreneurs that come from industries and where they've worked or businesses that they've worked in. So they actually understand it a little bit. Doesn't right. mean you can't have obviously the, you know, the, the people that start businesses in high school that are very successful. Um, but, you know, I do think it's, are you really solving a problem that people have? And some, let's face it, might be people don't even know they have the problem yet. Right, right. It might be a latent um, problem. You might have to uncover it. That's one of the reasons, Jane, why I believe as much as possible in the MVP approach to iterate, to validate that somebody is going to pay for that solution before you go and launch the whole big idea. Bingo. And so where our pre-flight program comes in is it's past, oh, I've got an idea. You actually have what you think is a business and you're trying to figure out, is this something that I could quit a day job for? And that's where we come into play, which going back to our earlier comments, there's a lot of let's get real, you know, go out and validate this. Is it something, how much money do you really think you could make? How would you finance this? What is, you know, what is the competitive analysis? And all of that goes in, that's when they enter our program, which is the pre-flight program that's offered three times a year. And it's a 14 week program and it's curriculum, but it's also really advisors and mentors. Excellent. Let let me jump ahead then because of the time uh, on this point of getting real in that second phase of rapid growth. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges I find myself and others that I've coached is when you, when you have to make that decision that maybe this business model isn't working, you know, I validated right. it up front, but now as I grow, it isn't working. How do you guide people to make that hard decision that maybe you have to pivot or completely abandon this business model? You know, I think that's a great question. And I think what I see so often is the founder wants to quickly hire a head of business development. Hmm. <laughs> and, um, and, and I really, um, you know, except in, I mean, nothing in entrepreneurship is, is um, black and white. I mean, so, you know, I say these things like they're just broad, broad generalizations, but I do think on average, the founder needs to be out there with the customers because as, the founder as much needs, customer facing as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Because what you really do is you learn so you can adapt. And so like my company started to help mid-sized law firms be able to bring on talent on an as needed basis that is nowhere close to where we ended, nowhere close. And so I wouldn't have known that if I weren't and out listening. And then when you expand, you still have to have all of that funneled into the founder's ears and mind, because I do think that helps you know how you should adapt. Okay. And if you're not getting anything that you think you could adapt into. And then it really is, we work with them on, this isn't personal. I mean, this isn't a failure on your part. I mean, you took a risk. Most entrepreneurs fail. 
um, you know, well, we take it personal because, because it is a creative expression, right? And so we absolutely, have to get over that. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And you have to get, and you know, and that's part of our counseling through. Thankfully, we don't have a lot of those because we hope we've sort of helped that in phase one before they right. get to phase two. And so if you're in phase two, it's more about, you've got a legitimate business. Now, how do you scale it and grow it? And then that the realization may be, well, it isn't really going to scale or grow beyond the Southeast. You know, well, why is that? And, you know, is that what you want? And so it's more that versus, or it could be, you know, the industry's passing you by really fast and you haven't kept up. But usually most of our people are at the forefront, not the tail. Yeah. All right. Phase three is to now stabilize it. And maybe I, I become a more owner independent business or I exit. The question I have for you here, which is the one that I find most challenging is how do I determine if it's time for me to get out? Me personally, as the founder, how do I determine that? How do you think about that? You know, I think that's such a personal thing. I mean, I always say with our company, what was right for the business and right for my family happened to coincide at the same time. Um, you know, I didn't feel that we had the leadership team and or the skill set to be a global company. I also thought the industry was catching up with us quickly and we didn't have the time to figure it out. At the same time, I had four children. Um, my husband and I were running this company. You know, what used to be a 20,000 investment was now a 2 million, 20 million. I mean, these were big dollars. And so the stress that it was taking in the family and, and the toll it was taking in the family, in addition to what the needs of the company were, we just felt, I felt it was time and Greg got there too. Um, and I hated it for him because for him, it was just starting to get fun in some I way, see. you I know, see. but for me, it was, you know, but it was a long soul searching, you know, I'm a person in my faith. And so a lot of prayer, a lot of listening and really looking at where I thought the company could go and what I thought the needs of the company, the company were, you know, productization, scaling, you know, I love to solve problems, nothing. I mean, that's what gets me jazzed. And so, which means you create new products all the time. You know, we really didn't need a lot of new products. <laughs> we needed to scale the products we had. And then I got that, but I'm like, and then, you know, somebody else could probably do that better than me. So I just think it's such a personal decision and there's so many variables that play into it, including family and life and, and being happy um, that, you know, I, I don't know that there is one answer or one size fits all. Yeah, no, there's not. But what you're touching on is I think a key component is when, when you identify that you're no longer in alignment with what your personal and family needs are and where the business needs to go or is going, that is like you experienced a good time to decide, all right, what do we do here? Is it time for me to exit? And so I think that's a prompt for asking yourself that question. Yeah. And I think for anyone in phase three, you've got to be thinking a secession plan. I mean, I always said I could be hit by a bus tomorrow. That's right. And this company is far bigger than me. And I've got to make sure we've got people that can carry it forward, the processes and the people. And so you've already put the groundwork in place. And, um, you know, and so I think that's that's one thing in phase three that we talk about is secession planning and, you know, and other things that are usually before exit, but things you might want to be thinking about 
before you actually get to that final, okay, I'm ready. Um, You know, because I think that that's all at least repeat. I I just believe in people making educated decisions. And, um, but I would agree it's when, and, and I also have seen too many founders to be very candid. I've seen too many founders hold on too long and end up being the chokehold on a business. That's right. That's right. And so as a lawyer, I always saw that. And it's like, I never want to be that person. This isn't a baby. This is a business. I mean, yeah, and when, it, when they pass it, it often ruins the company because right. so much of it was based on that person. Yeah. And you owe it to the stakeholders and, and to your staff, to your team. You owe it to them that there be something that lives on perhaps beyond you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So you touched on phase four already, which is the Uh circle back. Let me ask you this question and Mm -hmm. and related to what what the center offers. If I'm an entrepreneur in that Nashville area, successful entrepreneur, how can I become part of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center? Yeah. All you have to do, our website is www.ec.co. Um, and so you can look on there, but really just shoot an email, jane.allen at ec.co. And if I'm the right person to meet with, which I meet with, that's my job. I love meeting with entrepreneurs in our community. Um, and then I can meet with you. And then I can also make sure we get you plugged in and connected in the program and or the person and or the membership, whatever it is you're looking to do, whether it's I'll take a phone call with a you know, uh, phase one, phase two, or I am a phase one, phase two. I mean, most people just come in and talk to us and we'll figure it out. As to how they can contribute and be part of this. Yes. And phase four without question. And it really is anyone from, I just want to come and meet. I want to network and meet peers to, I want to advise and meet with an entrepreneur once a month to our entrepreneurs and residents right now are volunteers and they, they do a 12 month commitment and pour into everyone in a program and help connect them to the right people and other resources they need. So it's, it's across the board. It's as little time or as much time as somebody wants to give, we can take. Wonderful. All right. In about a minute or less, what else do you want to share with us about the National Entrepreneur Center that we didn't already talk about? No, I think it's just, it's a community resource that we have a wonderful, diverse community full of amazing people who are driving innovation in various industries. And I would think if you're in Nashville or you visit Nashville, you know, we're in the old trolley barn, so we're in this historic area, but yet when you walk in, it's very forward thinking and, um, innovative. And so it's a, it's a really cool um, space. It's full of great people and um, you know, and it's a resource here for our entrepreneurial community and our business community, quite frankly, because we do partner with our business community to help bring innovative solutions to them. Excellent. Great stuff. Jane, I'm always looking for a book recommendation. Is there a book you've read recently or that you're currently reading that you would recommend? You know, I go back, it seems, and read books that I've read throughout my journey. And, you know, and so I think, you know, one for me, a servant leader, um, the servant leader book, and I I really enjoy it. And then as far as the business book, I mean, I know it's old and I know it may be, but it's the good to great book. I mean, the hedgehog concept, because I think that's another thing as entrepreneurs, we try to do so many things. And it's always, you know, let's come back and focus on what is it you do and that you can do better than anyone else. 
And so um, those two to be those those two books are the ones that I end up always going back to. And then a recent book that I love as an entrepreneur is um, Jim McKelvey's book, um, The Gentleman That Started Square, and it's called The Innovation Stack. The Innovation Stack, okay. And that's one I read, and it was finally somebody had written a book, and I'm sure there are others, I just hadn't read them. Finally, I've read a book by someone that really gets my brain. Um, and so it was just a cool read, and I, and I really like that one too. Wonderful. Thank you for those recommendations. We'll have links to them on the show notes page of this episode at thehowabusiness.com. We'll wrap it up with these last two questions. And Jane, what's one thing you want to stick away from this conversation we had about the entrepreneur journey? You know, we laid out these, these four phases that you all help people with, but as an entrepreneur and this journey, what's, what's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think being an entrepreneur, it could be the loneliest journey that someone could take. And so making sure you connect to other people who can advise people you trust um, and people that can help you because there, there is definitely a community of people that want to give you a hand up and help you on your way without telling you what to do. Great point. I think it's so on point. I, I always say that it's, it's, a, it's a lonely pursuit and, and the people that usually are our circle of friends and families, while they're well-intended and they want the best for us, they don't, they're not, it's not the same as when you bounce an idea or have a conversation with somebody who's done the same thing or something similar. Right. I agree. Where do you want us to go online to learn more? Yeah. www.ec.co. And um, we have an amazing podcast because one of our missions is to share the story of the Nashville entrepreneurs. And so there's founders in our community that you can listen and learn little tidbits from, but we also have programs and different ways to get involved. So that would be it. Fantastic. Jane, thanks for taking the time to chat with me, share all this, all these insights and, and your experiences as well. Thanks for being with me today. No, thank you, Henry. I so appreciate it. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me on this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Jane Allen. I release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at our website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.